Okay, so today our message is called Prodigal Son, and here in the uh, the bulletin it says that I'm the one giving it. So it appears that I will be the one here giving the message. Um, and I have to tell you, at about five minutes to 11, I pulled Susan into the office and was like, okay, what am I supposed to do? I'm going to need to change my message um, now, because I don't really think that this is the message God wants me to preach. Um, and so how do I get out of here? <laughs> and being a true woman of God, she said, God always knows what message needs to be preached, and you're going to do just fine. And I thought, not the answer that I was looking for. I was looking for, hey, let me go grab somebody out of their seat and tell them they're preaching today. Um, it is also Communion Sunday, and so I'm sure that that is not lost on God. Nothing is ever lost on God. When Brad first asked me to preach, I knew immediately that I was preaching on the prodigal son. And in fact, I went up to the worship team, I don't even know how many weeks, actually I went up to Ruth, weeks ago when he first asked and said, um, I would like the song of reflection to be when God ran. That was pretty much all I knew about what I was preaching on. But as God and I have had some conversations over the last several weeks, we have disagreed on what it was that I would preach. I was going to preach on the scriptures, and God wanted it to be far more personal. So I'm guessing that he's going to win. Who knows? But he usually does. So so let's take a look at the prodigal son. It is in Luke chapter 15. And we don't start off with the prodigal son. We actually start off with a parable of the lost sheep. How many of you have ever heard of the story of the lost sheep, when God will actually leave the 99 to go find the one? And if any of you were here for our picnic, you searched high and low throughout the entire church to find the 99, actually I think it was 100, lambs that were hidden all over the church. Brad has a sense of humor. <laughs> but God tells us that he will leave the 99 to search for the one. Luke 15, 6 and 7 says, And he called his friends and neighbors together and said, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who did not need to repent. He follows that with the parable of the lost coin. And if any of you have ever had a bill that you needed to pay and didn't have the money to pay it, you understand the woman who lost a coin and searched her home until she found it. Luke 10, I'm sorry, Luke 15:10 says, "In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels over God, of God, over one sinner who repents." How many of you know that when someone comes to know the everlasting love of God, there is rejoicing in heaven? How many of you know that when every single one of us sitting in here today 
has strayed off course and we repent, there is celebration in heaven. When God goes to search for the lost sheep, it is not necessarily one who is not already a Christian. A lot of times he goes and looks for us who are in the family of God because we've wandered off course. So we come to the parable of the of the lost son or the prodigal son. And I've always heard this preached as referring to non-Christians who have come back to God. But I'm going to challenge you on that. Because in verse 11 it starts off, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. If we take out that word man and put in the word God, it says that God had two sons in this story. It is not a a Christian and a non-Christian. They are two who belong to the family of God. Uh Uh-oh. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. How many of us as Christians have squandered all that God has given us? We've asked for all of his blessings, and then once we have gotten them, we have gone off and squandered them in a distant land. And by distant land, I mean in this world. We are not of this world. We are strangers passing through this world to get to our eternity, to be at home with our Father in heaven. But yet we have taken many of his riches and we have squandered them here in this world. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out as a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed the pigs. How many of you want a job feeding the pigs? He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. We can get into a very dark and miry, muddy pit in this world. And what do we always do when we get ourselves into a mess? We call out to God. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Isn't that usually when we come back to God, when we are at the darkest, deepest spot in the pit, and we say, well, this isn't working. God, I'm going to need you to clean up this mess that, Frankly, I created because I walked away. I got off track. But I'm going to need your help here. 
He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so just make me a hired servant. What is the difference between a son and a hired servant? A son is invested. A son loves the father. A hired servant is paid to do what he does. And if another opportunity or a better opportunity comes along, he will be gone as quickly as he can because he's only there for the paycheck. You want to be a son. You do not want to be a hired servant. In anything you do, be a son. Be invested. Verse 22, But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost. And is found. So they began to celebrate. Can you imagine? As a parent, I know what it's like when my kids say, hey, I'm coming for Christmas dinner. Man, all the stops come out. Every favorite dish they've ever mentioned to me in the last 24 or 28 years is on that table. I don't care if it is a typical meal or side dish for Christmas. It's on the table. We have meatballs on the table every time Joshua pulls into our driveway because it is his favorite thing to eat. Thanksgiving dinner, you will get meatballs at my house. There may also be some turkey, but because when my kids say, hey, mom, I'm coming home, man, I'll do anything. And I don't love my kids with a quarter of what God loves me or you. And I can say that because as much as I love them with my whole heart, I don't even understand the amount of love that put Christ on that cross and endured all that he did for me. God's ways are higher than our ways. He loves us with a love that is incomprehensible to our human mind. But as is always the case, you got the other son sitting there. And what is he thinking? What the heck's going on? I ain't get a fatted calf. I don't have a nice robe. Where's my ring? Right? Because you know as Christians, when we see other Christians blessed, there is that moment in time where we think, oh, I am so happy for them. Why didn't I get that? Why do we do that? Because that's our human flesh. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Oh, good, it's even better. He's out working. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. They didn't even call me in from the field. They just left me out there still working. I am working my fingers to the bone, and you people are in here having a party for a guy who left with half of everything you own. Verse 26, so he called to one of the servants and asked what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back, safe and sound. 
<laughs> How many of you have ever had a... I have two kids, and I actually do go through this quite a bit, where some I do something for one, and the other one's like, well, you did such and such for her. Really? Do you want me to start listing all the things I've done for you, too? Why can't you just be happy for your brother? Or why can't you just be happy for your sister? I remember for years my mom saying, this was a big one in our family. We had three kids, so we got to fight even more, but... In high school, I had the opportunity to go to England and France, and my parents sent me. I spent two weeks over there with a whole group from our French club, and my oldest brother said, you never sent us to Europe. And my mom said, you never had the chance, and if you had, I'd have sent you. We grew up with my mom saying to us, I will never treat you the same, but I will always treat you fairly with what you are presented. And it was one of the greatest truths that I have passed on to my kids. God does not treat us the same, but he treats us fairly with what is presented before us. He knows what is good and perfect for each of us individually. And he will not give everyone exactly the same thing because some of us couldn't handle the burdens of others. Some of us would be crippled under the weight. Some of us would go off into a foreign land and maybe never come back. God will always treat us fairly with what is brought into our life, but he will treat us differently. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and, dis- and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. And then comes the wisdom that only a father can give. Verse 31, my son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I hope those of you in the back can see this. I have on here a straight line, and I know it's straight because I used a straight edge. Why did I use a straight edge to get a straight line? Anybody ever try to draw a straight line by themselves? It doesn't work. It's like your brain knows exactly where straight is and your hand cannot accomplish it. Right? So I used a straight edge. And the reason that I did is because I needed this line to be perfectly straight. Because it's going to represent God and his standards. It is straight. Let me show you a little bit about my life as a Christian. In accordance with what I know God's statutes and expectations are for me. The day that I was saved, right? I'm going to put myself right there. That is the one time that I know I was in the dead center of God's will because I had come to know him 
in a personal way and had given my life up for my desires and given it over to his desires. And then I woke up the next morning. And that's probably over here. And then God kind of, you know, he taught me some things and I'd be back over here. And then I'd kind of wander. Sometimes I'd wander too far and then I'd repent. And then I was a little off. And then sometimes God and I stayed pretty good, but I'm still a little over the place. And then we went a little off track. I don't know if your life looks the same as mine, but that's pretty much how life has been. When God, when, when God, I mean, it was really God, let's face it. But when Brad asked me to preach today, I had the moment of saying to him, um, no, why don't you ask Jerome? And he said, because I asked Jerome to speak in October and I don't want to have him do it twice, I'd like you to preach. And I said, um, no. <laughs> How about James? And I had quite a few names uh, ready to go that I could give him options for. And he said no to all of them. And I said to him, I am not in a place with God to be able to preach. I'm off track. And here's the thing about being off track. I know I'm off track. God and I, I'm way over here. God, God's standard has not changed. It has not moved. And it never does. You ever notice that one? No matter what I say to convince him, maybe he could just lean just a little more my way. It doesn't work. So I said to him, I'm off track. And he said, well, why? And I said, I don't know. I just am. I'll tell you, being married to a pastor, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. But you know what's really bad? Pour on top of the fact that he's a pastor, that he's also a counselor. And you are left with someone who is not going to leave you alone. They're going to keep questioning you. Why are you off track? I really don't know. Why don't you know? You know what the answer to that one was? It wasn't, I don't know. It was because I haven't asked God. Why haven't you asked God? Because I don't want to know the answer. I'm being happy right now in my off-trackness. Leave me alone. Anybody ever been there? So, of course, I had to ask God, why am I off-track? And you know what, God, if you really don't want to answer honestly, I'm okay with that. But he answered honestly. And nine times out of ten, why is it that we are off track? Because somebody hurt us. And we haven't dealt with it. We have unforgiveness. Yep. I had some unforgiveness. So then I had to ask the question, who? (laughs) And could you keep it to a short list of people, please? Because let's face it, when you're in unforgiveness, it just becomes easier and easier and easier for other people to offend you, and then you just keep piling up the unforgiveness. So when I took it back to its root and what caused it, I have to say, Brad, when I gave him the name, Brad said, you got to be kidding me. 
that's like the nicest person I've ever met in my entire life. Yep, I know, but they said something and it bothered me and I haven't given it up and I never talked to him about it and I don't plan on it, so I'm never taking communion again in my entire life and I may not ever preach for you again. Yeah, that doesn't really work, especially when you have to deal with it and and then you get to preach on communion Sunday. Tell me God does not have a sense of humor. Now, what I would like to say is that when God and I were having all of these conversations and Brad was sort of, you know, poking the bear, in the midst of them, I would love to say to you that my response was, God, I am a sinner and I repent. And that I would have done the fastest, straightest line back into being in his will that I possibly could. But I'm not going to lie to you. As of last night, I was still arguing with God. I'm going to need an easier message, Lord. I'm going to need something that doesn't just sort of slice me down the middle and open me up for the whole world. We're sort of really working our way. I didn't do an immediate turn. And God knew it. I was in the place of feeding the pigs and my stomach was hungry and I was still in the process of thinking, you know what? Even the servants at my father's house have plenty to eat. I ought to think about heading back over there. But that means dying to myself and giving up my right for revenge. Even if revenge is just telling them how they hurt me and how they were wrong. That seems fair. Except God is not one who allows us because it's not the person that said something. It was my reaction that was wrong. And it was the months of I'm going to hold on to my reaction that was wrong. So no matter what I did or how I tried to approach it, there was not a point at which I could go to that person and say, all right, I'm in unforgiveness because you did. It wasn't what they did. It was my response. My response got me off track. My response took me out of God's will. People say things all the time. They don't even know half of them hurt someone else. They didn't do it out of malice. Because I took it to be malicious does not mean that the intent was there. The problem came when I didn't go to God and say, you know what, Lord, this really hurt. And I'm going to need you to fix this. Because just like any little child who falls and scrapes their knee, they want mom or dad to put the Band-Aid on. Could they go to the medicine cabinet themselves? Yeah, probably. They could probably put the Band-Aid on themselves. But they don't want that. They want mom or dad to put the Band-Aid on and kiss the boo-boo and make it all better. I didn't do that. So by the time that I got around to it, it wasn't just a little scrape on the knee. It was a hole in my leg that needed either 
major surgery or amputation. And the whole time, I knew I was off. And I wasn't asking God. Because he and I were not in alignment. But here's the beauty of God. When he sees you in the distance coming toward him, you take that first or second or third step and he covers the eight miles in less than a second. He runs after us. He is always looking for his students, his children. He's even looking for his hired servants. Verse 20 says, So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. Our Father has His eye on us always. It does not matter how far off of His will, His straight line, His statutes that we get. His eye is on us. And as soon as we make that turn and say, God, He is there. Because He's been watching And he has been waiting for that moment for us to say, Lord, I repent. I am the one who is off. I'm the one who is wrong. Because God isn't. Let me just lay that out for you at the beginning. God isn't wrong. We are. And most of the time, other people are not our problem. Because we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against principalities and powers of darkness. If you can see your opponent, you are fighting the wrong one. Because we do not war against flesh and blood. It's not the person or what they said. It was my response. Jesus walked this earth and lived a perfect life. How can any of us expect to do anything close to what he did? In fact, in John 16:33, he said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He tells us. This is not going to be a a walk in the park. You will have trouble. But he has overcome. I'm not sure. Does that really still help us? I mean, he's perfect. So yay for him. Woo! Right? How am I going to get through this? 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are the temple of God and... The Spirit of God dwells in you. Can we live a perfect life? Probably not, because we still war against our flesh. But every ounce of spirit that allowed Jesus Christ to walk this earth as a perfect example of God's expectations dwells in you. 
In fact, Romans 8 verse 9 warns us, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. If you do not believe you have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, get on your knees before God because that is an indication you do not belong to Him and that is not a place you want to be. You have the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. We are able to stay a little closer to this line of God's will in our life. We are able by our choice. This was my choice. This one probably was too. Let's face it. This is me giving in to all that the Holy Spirit asks of me on a daily basis. And yeah, I'm a little off the line and off the mark once in a while, but I come back to center at the end of every day and probably 800 times within the day when I remember, God, I'm off and I know it. Get me back to you. And he does. When the Bible says pray continuously, it means pray continuously. Let the spirit that dwells within you commune with God constantly. Evaluate constantly. Walk away from a conversation. Ooh, Lord, I did really good except for those three sentences there near the middle where I was off. Forgive me for those and let me just keep going. How often do we really evaluate the things we say and do? And how often do we hold something that really we need to take to God? We need to get back on course. James 1 verse 12 said, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. I had the opportunity. I stood at a crossroads. Was I going to be the one who perseveres under trial and having stood the test of time would receive a crown of life that the Lord has promised? Or was I going to hold on to unforgiveness until some random person finally figured out that they hurt me six or seven or eight months ago that they don't even know they did because it didn't take them out of the will of God for their life. It took me out of the will of God for my life. Let it go. Give it to God. If it was unfair and it might have been, you're still only hurting yourself. You're still only taking yourself off into the Wilderness, God is always sovereign and he is always looking at every one of us. And when we turn to come back to him, because all of us have been the prodigal son. And all of us have been the son who stood back and got angry when the fighted calf was killed for somebody who finally returned home. So on this, a communion Sunday... Give it to God. 
Lay it all before him. It's not fun to have him cut you right down the middle and lay everything open. He will dissect your heart. He will take everything out of it and show you the good, the bad, the unforgiveness. He'll show you all of it. And some of it isn't stuff you want to see. But he already knows it anyway. So what are we hiding? Think about this before we go to communion. If there is anything you hold, if there is any unforgiveness in you, go to the communion table having already given it to God, having released it, having expressed forgiveness for anyone who hurt you, for unforgiveness you've had against yourself, for unforgiveness you've had against God, because we are all capable of holding unforgiveness against God and ourselves and others. Let God really speak to your heart. Blessed is the one who preserves under trial because having stood the test of time, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to them who love him. Persevere. Stand strong. God is sovereign. He knows so much more than we do, right? And he works in so many mysterious ways. I'd like to point out that Scott has been picking out music now. The only thing that I asked for was the song of reflection, and he has picked out everything else. And when I was in here this morning, arguing with God over what I was preaching, (laughs) I was listening to the songs that they were practicing. We started with, God saying, I am holding on to you in the middle of the storm. Not when the storm's done, in the middle of it. Hold on to God. He's holding on to you. He is I am. And then they did, you're a good, good father. Because there are times in our life when we're in the middle of the storm that we need to remember he is a good, good father who runs when we seek repentance. God wanted to encourage us in the face of all that we walk through in this world. And today I believe he did it through song, through the message, and through communion. Hold on to him. He's holding on to you. He is a good, good father who will run to you. So let's leave today knowing that we have the victory in Jesus.